Hello, Oldest Stories listeners. This episode was originally episode 10. However, when I first made this show, I had the chronologies all confused. This material covered here comes after the fall of the Akkadian Empire, in the Ur-3 period, and so it has subsequently been moved from where it originally appears in the show listing. The content is still valid, though as an early effort at history on this show, it is a bit unfocused in places. I hope you enjoy the show. These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. When I started this podcast, I wasn't really sure what direction it was going to go in. I like stories, I like ancient history, and there is a nice intersection of the two in the myths and histories recorded in ancient Mesopotamian clay tablets. But while these are fun, and certainly far from exhausted, they give us only one side of life. And so, today we're going to try to take a break and try a different source of oldest stories. We have recovered, and by we, I mean archaeologists. I didn't really have anything to do with it. Very, we've recovered mail from various times and places in ancient Mesopotamia, as well as business and legal documentation of various sorts. And when we look at some of the better pieces of mail, I think we get interesting stories. And so today, we're going to just go forward a few hundred years to a new city and a new dynasty. We've been focusing ourselves mostly on the gods and kings centered around Uruk from the period 3000 to 250 BCE. But now we're going to move to the similarly named but different city of Ur, specifically the third dynasty of Ur, running from about 2112 to 2004 BCE, depending on how you do your chronologies. There's, of course... Huge error bars around all of these dates. I'm picking this because we have an interesting cache of well-preserved letters from the period, but I promise it is an interesting time in its own right, not just because of the historical accident of getting these letters. Now, this is not strictly a history podcast. I'm far too loose with things like dates and historical accuracy for that, but... Since we are jumping forward a bit here and want to get a sense of the area, we'll go back to Uruk. Recall that Mesopotamia in those days was a group of city-states along the Tigris and Euphrates River. And I have in previous podcasts mentioned that these cities would often make war on each other, but it was particularly difficult to project power across the region in the era due to the difficulty of traveling and the general poverty and lack of technology by our standards. This is, after all, the Bronze Age, they don't even have iron yet. Because of this, when local conditions changed to make a particular city in the region prosperous and they got a particularly competent ruler, that city would begin to expand its influence in the region and launch raids and demand that other rulers acknowledge their hegemony. This is how it was with the military campaigns of the city of Uruk that we covered in the tales of Enmerkar, Lugalbanda, and even Gilgamesh. Well, after Gilgamesh, his son was king, as is usual in the way of monarchy, followed by his grandson and five other kings, each with shorter and less successful reigns, until the Sumerian king's list notes that under the rule of Lugal Kigin, Uruk was defeated and hegemony over the region passed to Ur. Then hegemony was taken by the city of Awan, which is out in Elam in modern Iran, then on to Kish, then a Brief interlude when the king Hattanish of the city Hamazi ruled the region, but his reign didn't outlast his own life. 
then a three-king dynasty of Uruk, then a second dynasty of Ur, then Adab, then on to Mari, then back to Kish, then to Akshak, then to Kish again, and then Uruk a third or fourth time, I'm honestly losing count here, then to Akkad, led by the famous Sargon the Great, who I will definitely be spending an episode or two on. Then after a solid 11 kings of the Akkadian Empire, Uruk ruled again. Then the non-Mesopotamian Gutian nomad people invaded and ruled for 21 very short-lived kings. One wonders about the court intrigue there. Then we get another one-king empire from Uruk. And finally, in about the year 2112 BCE, hegemony over the general Mesopotamian region was conquered by the city of Ur under the king Ur-Namu, founder of the third dynasty of Ur. At least, this is how the later Sumerians saw history, although it's obviously alighting over both minor powers and the fact that many of these powers existed and ruled different places at the same time. Still, it's a span of a few hundred years and it is an extremely volatile situation where cities are either expanding or contracting and only occasionally sitting happy at the top of the heap. It is into this context that we meet the third dynasty of Ur, a period called the Sumerian Renaissance. Physically, Ur is a fascinating city. Another truly ancient settlement, settled perhaps as early as 6000 BCE. It was at the time situated along the Persian Gulf, though over the last 3000 years the coastline has shifted out, making the current ruins reasonably inland. Because of its location, though, it would have hosted a tremendous amount of fishing in the river, the marshes, and the sea, and could potentially have supplied enough food to feed a host of people even before the agricultural revolution that we usually think of as being a prerequisite for cities proper. It was decently prosperous throughout the Sumerian and later Akkadian period, but now we're seeing it at the end of the age, and a glorious end at that. It's estimated that at 65,000 people, it was the largest city in the world at the height of the Third Dynasty in 2000 BCE. That prosperity was built from the strong foundations that the first king, Ur-Namu, laid down. A campaign of conquests, obviously, followed by near-constant warfare on the borders, which was pretty typical for Bronze Age despots. But Ur-Namu was also a particularly inspired state builder, beginning the construction of a hundred-foot-tall Great Ziggurat of Ur, and laying out the oldest code of laws that still survives to this day, possibly the first of its kind written in generations, and serving as an inspiration for both the later Code of Hammurabi and possibly a portion of biblical law. The Code of Ur-Namu opens with invocations of the local patron gods of Ur, Nana the Moon and Shamash the Sun, we've met him a lot, then announces that by taking up the role of judge and lawgiver, a duty not typically undertaken by Bronze Age monarchs who generally delegated what courts of justice they did run to lower officials, Ur-Namu has eradicated all injustice and iniquity from the realm. This strikes me as unlikely, but after his self-congratulation, he then fixes the value of currency in his law code, declaring the weights of the shekel, mina, and talent to be standardized at 60 shekels to a mina and 60 mina to a talent. Estimates put the wages for a base laborer at various times and places in the Bronze Age Middle East to around 10 to 25 shekels a year. 
to give a sense for the size of fines that were going to be coming up. It's likely that his standardization of currency, as much as his standardization of law, was a major factor in establishing the nascent almost empire of Sumeria. So having invoked the gods and established courts and standardized currency, he goes off to list crimes. We have about 29 surviving crimes and punishments. The list of crimes starts off with capital punishment for murder and theft, with imprisonment and a 15-shekel fine for kidnapping. If you knock out an eye, you pay the victim a half-mina, or 30 shekels, perhaps three years' wages for a laborer, while a foot only goes for 10 shekels, a full limb is worth a full mina, a nose is worth 40 shekels, teeth are priced at two shekels each. Mere perjury in court is priced at the seemingly low 15 shekels, though withdrawing from an oath puts you on the hook to pay the entire settlement to the injured party, so it would seem that not all witnesses were under oath in the courts of Ur. We then get a trio of fun economic laws. First, that a man who stealthily cultivates another man's field then raises a complaint that those crops that he cultivated should be his will have his complaint rejected and his underhanded efforts wasted. Because, of course, he didn't own the land. If a man floods another man's field, presumably in the process of managing his own irrigation network, or if a man is hired to cultivate a field but doesn't do his job, then in either case the penalty for the damaged land is three gur of grain per iku of land destroyed. I tried to convert this to modern units, but I got like 18 to 20 tons of grain per acre, which is exceedingly harsh or a mistake on my part seeing as American farm productivity is about a tenth of that per acre. In any case, up to this point, I would think you could replace the American law code with the Neo-Sumerian and probably have an improvement over our current mess. But then we get to the sex and slave laws. If a man takes the virginity of another man's fiance, the rapist will be killed. That's a good start. If a man takes the virginity of another man's slave, however, that's only worth five shekels. And if a married woman sleeps with another man, married or not, the woman shall be killed and the man set free. And it seems to be explicitly stated that there is no penalty for raping a widow, though it does seem to be implied that all sex out of marriage is unacceptable. So this may be an act of mercy for widows seeking consensual post-marriage relationships. No one ever accused the Bronze Age of feminism in any case. Charmingly, with only about 29 laws surviving, Ur-Namu also thought it was important to regulate the penalty for a slave woman speaking insolently to her mistress, which is to have her mouth scrubbed with a quart of salt, and that if a man accused of sorcery passes the trial by water and is innocent, then his accuser must pay three shekels. I seem to have gotten lost in the weeds here a little bit. I got a little too excited over the oldest surviving code of laws and forgot the point of today's episode, so we'll just pretend that I casually glossed over Ur-Namu and get to the main player today, his son, King Shulgi, from whom we have a fair bit of surviving correspondence that gives us a window into his own character 
and the day-to-day -day concerns of the Neo-Sumerian court. Like his father, Shulgi was a conqueror and state builder, expanding territory, finishing his father's great ziggurat of Ur, and getting so deep in the weeds of economic regulation that he appears to have nationalized the entire textile industry for a period of time in what seems to be a world first for big government. But on to the letters. The first from the mailbag is a series of correspondence between Shulgi and his general-slash-governor Aradgu. The letter opens, like all letters, with the phrase, Say to recipient that this is what sender says, which reminds us that even though these are all written down, the clay tablets are meant as memory aids, in this case, to messengers for a strongly oral culture. Aradgu would have spoken the letter to a scribe, even if he knew how to read, he still would have spoken the letter to a scribe, who would pass it to a messenger, who would travel to the capital, pass it to another scribe, who would then read it out to King Shulgi. And so, in a similar fashion, I will deliver the words of a man 4,000 years dead to your ears. Aradgu says, My lord, you sent me on a mission to the recently conquered territory of Subir. Where is Subir? I don't know. It's hard to tell. Your instructions were to work with a native, a man named Appalachia, who bears the title Sage of the City Assembly, to collect taxes and ensure obedience by allowing the city to be governed under their own customs. But when I arrived, no one asked about your health, and when I announced that I was your emissary, no one rose or bowed before me, and they even tried to intimidate me. And Appalachia himself was the worst of them, covered in gold and jewels, surrounded by 10,000 troops, performing rituals reserved to the king alone. And not only did he not stand or bow in my presence, he insisted that I sit when giving my king's instructions, though I refused this. It's been about a month now, and the situation hasn't improved. My lord must know this. Some time later, King Shulgi sent a response to General Aradgu. Say to Aradgu, this is what your lord Shulgi says to you. The man to whom I've sent you is not your subordinate. He will not accept orders from your hand. How can you ignore his own accomplishments and that his station is no less than yours? I ordered you to secure the region, bring cities into compliance, clear the road of bandits, spread my word, and learn carefully everything you can about the region. And when you reach Appalachia, sage of the assembly, you are to work with him. This is how I instructed you. Why have you not acted as ordered? I have to make the sage of the assembly feel that he is just as important as me, operating with the highest authority and enjoying the highest luxuries, because if I don't allow him to show off his great opulence and exercise total power, how else can the province be secured? Look, if you truly love me, you will not bear him a grudge. You are important, but you have missed a part of your mission. Your eyes have learned about Appalachia's troops and Appalachia's character, valuable intel that will aid us in keeping the region. If you indeed are my servant, then you should pay attention to my written communications. 
you two must come to an understanding and secure the foundations of the province. It is urgent. Shulgi's reply reveals so much about the actual governance of the Neo-Sumerian Empire, how almost tenuous his hold on many places truly was, and how tight a balancing act he ran when he had to find someone to trust and empower who could manage this distant province, but also needed someone loyal to be present to watch for signs of rebellion. I mean, we look at maps today, like the one on the post for this episode over at oldeststories.net, and we see a highlighted area of control, but it wasn't nearly as clear as territory in a modern state. Clearly, General Aradgu was expecting far more loyalty, but Shulgi knew that a certain amount of corruption and disloyalty was worth it to have a man who could get things done in this town. Sometime later, Aradgu sends a reply, sadly less intact than the previous exchange, where he reports that his work gangs have started work repairing the irrigation networks in the province. The irrigation networks were a central feature of economic life in Mesopotamia, a massive public work that provided the food surplus for the cities and required constant upkeep. In this case, Aradgu mentions that the bandits, who may include the nomadic Gutians who still occupied many regions and still raided, had purposely flattened the waterways during their retreat. But now, the men and women of the province are able to travel the roads freely again, and the work gangs and ranchers are all setting up tents in the fields, which he mentions, I believe, because his work gang would be made up of soldiers or men of Ur, and the fact that they're getting along with the local herdsmen is a good sign for integration. He continues, I have not neglected the instructions of my lord. Working day and night, my neck is stiff, and I am under a great workload. Appalachia has been charismatic since childhood and surely knows the good intentions in my heart. After all, you, my lord, have a keen eye like a god and can spot evildoers immediately. As great as he makes himself, you surpass all and have no equal. Aradgu continues saying, If you have gotten some kind of report from Appalachia, Know that I consider your instructions to be the most important. His pleasant words are in your heart, so how could I bear a grudge? I am occupied securing the province and making it obedient, so no king can rival you. Let your heart be glad. We have two more good letters from Aradgu, presumably from later on, both in which he claims credit for doing all the hard work to rebuild the land of Subir. One reads, My lord, I have received your instructions on various matters of state pertaining to the territory of Subir. All cities, environs, troops, fields, and waterways are in good shape. The city governors are obedient. I have posted guards in all the fortresses, and all the troops are loyal. I have drained some flooded land and repaired some leaky waterways. In general, everything is good here. And some time later, we find a similar, though more fragmentary, letter from Aradgu, also affirming that all is well. No further mention is made of Appalachia in his letters, and it isn't clear if he's being self-aggrandizing by taking credit, or if he truly is the one doing all the work, but was chastised well enough not to complain further. Interestingly, 
Though we have nothing more about Appalachia from a Radgu, we do have one more letter about him that gives us a better idea of his true loyalty. It is from a merchant named Er Dunn, who, after the opening formalities, says, My lord gave me silver and sent me to a distant land to purchase cedar resin. After I had entered the land and purchased the cedar resin, Appalachia, the sage of the assembly, sent men and took away my goods. When I arrived at his palace gate to complain, I was ignored. Aradgu and Babati, the two men loyal to you, had already left, and their messengers were being ignored. Though I was an envoy of my lord, I was in a weak position and unable to contest their illegal seizure. This is my report, and I will do whatever you say, my lord. And so, we see the moment Aradgu was moved on to his next assignment. Already, Appalachia was behaving dishonorably again. I don't know what comes of it after this. This seems to be the last we hear of corrupt Appalachia. But I would note that aside from loyal Radgu, everyone seems to accept a certain level of gross corruption from the king's representative in Subir. But here, the letters of Radgu leave Subir and head to a region possibly called Zimudar, which like Subir, is too obscure for me to figure out where it is precisely, but it seems to have been at the northern extreme of the empire in modern northeast Syria, far away indeed from Ur near the modern Iraq-Kuwait border, and importantly, on the frontier against the Amorites, a constant threat in the period, and in fact, ultimately a factor in the collapse of the third dynasty of Ur, though that is some time from now. For now, what we have is a request from one Commander Puzzer Shulgi, who has been stationed in the region, and he certainly had a bit of flair in his writing or speaking style, because he writes from sometime during Radgu's stay in Subir with Speaker Appalachia, Say this to my lord. This is what Puzzer Shulgi, commander of the fortress Igi Hursaga, your servant, says. All the gold and silver my lord has been fashioning for the great gods, is it not for his own life? For the life of the troops and his land, my king has built Fortress Igi Hursaga, and because of the wicked enemy. And now the enemy troops have risen up. One man who has fled from me after an encounter has been brought back as a prisoner and confirmed this. The oracles also say that the enemy has replenished his strength for battle. However, my strength is limited, and I cannot strengthen the fortress further or guard against him. Buzzer Shulgi then lists a number of places where the enemy has destroyed sections of the canal, which are necessary for troop movements as well as irrigation, and you can almost feel the desperation laying behind his long list of destruction. The report then picks up with, Moreover, it's not known when the enemy will pitch camp. Once the enemy is encamped, I will replenish my powers. By which he means he's too busy playing whack-a-mole with the swift and dispersed enemy to concentrate his force at the moment. If my lord agrees, Puzzer Shulgi says, may he send me speedily 7,200 soldiers as workmen who will carry baskets for me, 70 Simaskian attendants, and whatever else can be spared. Simaski, as... A side note was a kingdom in Iran currently allied to King Shulgi. The commander here is requesting 70 foreign specialists, presumably builders of some sort or architects, making his request principally concerned with the logistics of building rather than merely for additional troops. 
Puzzer Shulgi concludes the letter, saying that the enemy has made it known that the people of the region will be resettled after conquest, meaning if the Neo-Sumerians lose this land in this coming battle, then it will be made even less useful, even if they should be able to take it back at a later date, since the native Zimudarites would be replaced by the more hostile Amorites. His valediction is, I am the loyal servant of my lord Shulgi. Let this not be the death of me. Fortunately, Shulgi does not delay in responding to the crisis. The opening of his response is fragmentary, but seems to be mostly self-congratulation. It picks up with the orders start, first ordering Perzo Shulgi to mobilize all the cities of the region. I have sent the reinforcements you requested, as well as Commander Aradgu to act as general manager. When the master builder has taken up the work concerned, he is to re-establish securely any place where the fortification has fallen into ruins. Let him reinforce and also rebuild it. The neglected workload is to be completed within one month. I shall be questioning him about his work. Lu Nana, governor of Zimudar, will be bringing troops, and he has enough grain that there should be no hardship for him. When this is all done, send me a letter. When you have completed the inspections, let Lu Nana take his troops out to battle. You and Aradgu should not delay him. Build by night and in the heat of the day without rest. Your orders are rigorous, and you must not neglect the workload. It is urgent. Soon enough, we have a response from Aradgu, informing the king that, as to the fortification which my lord sent me back to work on, it has been put into effect. The enemy is keeping at a distance, and my lord continues to maintain his sublime reputation in the south and the uplands, from the rising and setting sun as far as the borders of the entire land. The rebellious Amorites have been turned back. There is a second part of the letter mentioning problems that is unreadable, but the demanding but competent King Shulgi has sent his talented fixer Aradgu and stabilized the crisis with this. But still, not all is well in the fortress of Igihursaga. Aradgu sends another letter condemning a lesser commander, Abba Indasa, saying, May my lord take note most carefully concerning this matter. When I came to Zimadar, the province protected by the fortress Igihursaga, I was levying troops for the expedition. But when Abba Indasa inspected his troops, 2,000 of those men were missing. They were not dead or wounded. They have abandoned the fortress, my lord. They have taken flight. From both soldier and commander, this is a great offense. Whatever you say about this matter, you should know this. Well, here we see one part of the management strategy of Shulgi, carefully wording his response to his top general, saying... Abbe Indasa, the captain of the pledged troops, has sent a letter concerning the same matter, insisting that he is clamped down heavily when you grew offended at him. But why was he selected from the ranks to become an officer of the guard? Consider this, and let your heart bear this offense. The enemy has departed, and the troops can safely return. He says a fair bit more to Aradgu that can't really be made out, but we also see the second part of Shulgi's management indirectly with a follow-up letter from the negligent Abba Indasa himself, and it lays the flattery on thick. 
Say to my lord and repeat to my kid of the mountains with beautiful horns, to my horse of the mountain with an eagle's claws, my date palm growing on untouched ground with fresh dates. This is what captain of soldiers Abba Indasa, who by means of prayers for his king greatly pleases his king's heart, your servant says. You are mighty, Lord. Let me be your soldier. Let me be your courier of business. When a boat is available, I will steer the rudder. When water is available, I will plunge in. When labor is available, I will thresh the wheat. When wind is available, I will winnow the wheat. I am a scribe who writes on stele. I will handle business that has been neglected in the assembly. But like a tree planted in a thicket, I'm bound down in dirt. They've bound a rope on my hands and tied me to a chair. In my own city, instead of clean clothes, I wear mourning dress. And when I wash the soil from my face, dust still gets in my eyes. Dogs devour corpses, but then lift their chest. Dragons kill, but then leave the part they haven't eaten. Grant me my life and hold my hands. I am the son of a widow and have no one to take care of me. As for me, when will the heart of Shulgi, my lord, be restored to me? May my lord attend to me and restore me to my mother. Now, was Abba Indasa actually imprisoned? Probably he was just out of favor and acting like a little drama llama. But Shulgi demanded that his subordinates in all cases behave with respect and professionalism towards each other, while he took action where he could to correct failures, an effective management lesson that resonates even in modern times. This series of letters followed the career of Aradgu, a man about whom we know almost nothing outside of these letters, but he appears to have been admirably competent and loyal and almost completely forgotten to history. All his efforts to align the region of Subir and Sage of the Council Appalachia to the wider empire, and today that success or failure would have made no difference to how that region in modern Iraq would look. All his time to construct the fortress to fight the Amorites, but the fortress is gone, as are the Amorites, the Sumerians, and even the successors of those successor people have been superseded. We actually have another set of fun letters from two generations later, where we still see Commander Puzzer Shulgi battling the Amorites, and a young ambitious grain merchant that Shulgi initially establishes growing corrupt under the weaker king Ibisuen. And that episode would follow the collapse of the empire Shulgi had built. But this episode is already running long, so I will have to save it for another day. Or not. I had fun with these letters, but go online to oldeststories.net and leave a comment to let me know if you like these more historical stories or if you prefer the more fantastical narratives of the ancient myths. Depending on feedback and, most importantly, my own personal inclination, I may be doing more mailbag episodes. We'll see. But the experimenting continues for one more week since next week I want to also look at one more genre of ancient literature. Philosophy may still be 2,000 years away from getting invented, but people with ideas is as old as human thought, and no sooner had writing been invented than did people start wanting to publish their opinions, regardless of who wanted to hear them. A 
impulse I can truly sympathize with. And so next week, we will look at wisdom literature from ancient Sumer to see just how wise the wise men of the day truly were, and if there are any universal lessons discovered 4,000 years ago that still apply today. Thank you for listening.